All right, so welcome to another episode of the Speech Entropy Podcast. Today with Mike Granoff. Um, Mike, I'm happy that you're here. Uh, we're going to talk obviously a lot about you, but also and more particularly what you are uh, specifically doing. And, you know, uh, it took a while to actually arrange this, but uh, happy that we're doing this today. And, uh, you know, first and foremost, we always start the same way. Obviously, that we would kind of like dig a little bit deeper who is it that we're talking to um, today. And that's why I kind of I would like you, you know, uh, like to give you the stage to kind of tell us a little bit about where you're coming from and what is it that you're doing today and how you ended up there. Terrific. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. And I really appreciate your persistence in making this happen through a busy time. Um, so, you know, I took a rather unconventional path to being in the venture world. Um, and it didn't start out from a desire to be a venture capitalist, but it did start out, I would say, um, around 20 years ago from a um, real uh, interest in, in the fact that uh, oil is a monopoly in global transportation. If you think about it, um, over the last 100 years, virtually all forms of movement, uh, aside from personal uh, movement, walking or, or biking under your own power have, has, has involved uh, oil. Um, you know, whether that's cars and trucks or planes or ships or, you know, even uh, motorcycles or lighter weight vehicles, it's all been uh, an oil world in terms of movement and transportation. That's the lifeblood of the global economy. And obviously we all know the problems that oil has with it, uh, the climate issue being one of many. And so uh, I got interested in the question, could you possibly find a way to replace oil or to at least ameliorate the monopoly status of oil in transportation? And um, uh, that led me to um, team up with a buddy of mine who started an organization uh, that uh, I've, uh, he still runs and I'm still on the board of uh, about 17 years after we began it. It's based in Washington, DC. It's called Securing America's Future Energy Safe. And uh, what SAFE did was to really change the conversation around energy policy in Washington, DC. Instead of talking just about the environmental impact of uh, transportation and of oil use, it talked also about the national security impact of oil dependence, about the macroeconomic distortions caused by having a single commodity that was the entire transportation system of the world. And uh, as a result, it had success in finding political coalitions from the right and the left that were able to come together in 2006 to pass a bill that uh, increased fuel economy standards for cars and trucks and had, among many other things, also had the first in the world incentives for electric vehicle uh, purchasing. And uh, I kind of participated at some degree in that process and was um, discouraged by the fact that most of what was actually coming together in the bill, I didn't think could be tremendously impactful. You know, things like more corn to grow uh, ethanol uh, for fuel, that in my mind is not gonna uh, uh, replace oil in any meaningful way. Um, but I was intrigued by the idea of batteries and the idea of electric. And I hired a student at MIT to teach me about uh, batteries for a month. I'm not an engineer. I'm not that technical. I don't retain a lot. Uh, but 
uh, I came away from that experience with the deep conviction that the price of energy storage was on a declining cost curve that's similar to a Moore's law type of curve. And that where in 2006, the cost of batteries was around 12, $1,300 per kilowatt hour, it seemed that there was a very good chance that would be cut by 90% over a decade, decade and a half. In fact, that happened. Um, the other side of the equation I kind of took for granted, and, and that's where I was wrong, as most people were wrong, because uh, I assumed that oil production um, was, was only going to decline over time. In the US, production of oil peaked in 1971 and declined every year thereafter until 2011, when uh, new uh, methods of oil extraction, uh, such as shale, came online. And, and the U.S. suddenly began to produce much more oil than it had before, it became effectively um, independent uh, oil-wise and, um, uh, and, and stabilized the global price. And in fact, I think that it was that oil extraction technology that made it such that the 2010s were not the disruptive decade on electric vehicles that I think they otherwise would have been. Um, nonetheless, I did conclude in 2006, in, in to my own satisfaction, that ultimately everything on wheels was going to be electrified. And I um, kind of said I was going to set my career on that premise. And in 2007, I went out and met a couple of guys in California, um, both immigrants, both around my age, both had the same conviction about electric, but they had radically different ideas for businesses uh, to take advantage of that. Uh, and between us two guys, I can say pretty unequivocally, I picked the wrong one. <laughs> I uh, went with a, a guy named Shai Agassi over a guy named Elon Musk. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I have to explain what happened to Elon Musk and what seems to me this fanciful idea of building the first successful new car company in 80 years. But um, on the Agassi side, um, he, he had a plan, which I actually thought was incredibly imaginative. And I would still to this day say it was the most interesting and potentially impactful business model I ever saw. It wasn't about building cars, but it was about building networks. And it was about changing the business model such that you took away the major reason why people didn't want to buy electric cars, um, which was the upfront cost. That was uh, a function of the battery. So uh, customers would buy the car, and they'd subscribe to our network and we would supply all the batteries and we'd make those batteries switchable. And in fact, we spent a billion dollars over five years and we built out a lot of infrastructure, including across two entire countries, Denmark and Israel, a network of battery switch stations. We also had charging when that was more convenient, but the switch stations enabled two things. It enabled unlimited range because you could always just switch a battery in minutes like you would fill up the gas station and be on your way. And the other thing enabled was separating the battery from the car, not just for extended range, but for that business model so that the consumer didn't have to pay for that battery up front. And so um, they just paid for the miles that they drove. We kept, we managed the whole stable of batteries. And as long as those batteries had life in them, we were uh, getting um, miles and, and, and dollars out of them. And that's why I say, I think it, it was a brilliant, brilliant business model. Unfortunately, the execution did not live up to the vision. And uh, ultimately, that company did not succeed. Um, I, uh, I set out to write a book about that experience, actually, and decided to pass it on to a professional writer at some point. 
pretty early. Um, and uh, and he did a very, very good job for anyone that's interested. The book is called Totaled. The author is Brian Blum. But um, at that point, I had moved uh, from uh, the US uh, to Israel. And it so happened that Israel was having a tremendous renaissance around technology related to cars, automotive, and mobility more generally. And um, I'll maybe pause there if, if you uh, want to ask any questions, but we can also ponder if, you, if you'd like the, the word mobility. And I think it's a very, very interesting phenomenon that we've seen around that word uh, over the last uh, decade. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, let me, before, before I forget it, you know, just a heads up here. Uh, first, uh, you know, you're not the, you're not the first uh, guy that, um, you know, maybe took the wrong, uh, wrong uh, route uh, in regards to Elon Musk. I already had another one <laughs> on the <this> show. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, so uh, there's there's lots of things that, we're, that we can talk about. Right. And um, I think, uh, you know, what's what's very interesting is because you've been really, let's say, in in the ecosystem for 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 a long time and have been observing let's say all the all the major shifts and changes and um i think what you just proposed in general like to talk about like mobility in the sense of like the, the meaning of that and and how that ultimately kind of changed i think that that's a good start you know because we're obviously also going to talk about manif and like um you know what you guys are doing there and how how the story basically uh, is behind that but you know let's 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 start with I guess you know what you just proposed because I think that's a a very good baseline to to kind of use as a you know as a foundation for our discussion, right? So what what ultimately is mobility, right? Nowadays and like how did it change and where are we going with this? So um, what I think is fascinating about the word is that um, we started operating under the moniker Maniv Mobility in 2015. And at first, at the beginning, I remember people saying, oh, mobility. So mobility, you know, that's like mobile, right? So what do you do, like apps? That's what people thought because the word mobility, even though the dictionary definition and the kind of intuitive definition, if you think about it, has to do with, with movement, um, it was not a, a common term. And why wasn't it a common term? This is a very important point, I think. Because for 100 years, mobility was synonymous with automotive there were no real alternatives. There was mass transit, there was aviation, as there are other forms of mobility, but we didn't think of them as such. Really, mobility meant cars, it meant, it meant automotive. And interestingly, I think there's about a hundred year um, uh, kind of book, bookends, uh, which is September 1st, 1908, was when the first Ford Model T rolled off the assembly line. And that was, that was a transformative moment for humanity. Because not, you know, I, I'd say uh, the only product that has ever come close to that impact, maybe you could say, is the iPhone, which we're going to get to in a moment. But that before that, um, it wasn't just that this was a, a a vehicle that you know people could afford to own and drive. It's that most people died within 30, 40 miles of where they grew up and never went further than that radius in their whole lives because they just didn't have the means to do it. Some of the more affluent people have had horses and carriages and all of that, but that wasn't, uh, it, it, it wasn't just that the automobile was coming to replace those. It was coming to uh, give everyone access to this kind of tra personal transportation. And obviously the automotive age um, was, uh, transform it to just about every industry imaginable. So that's uh, September 1st, 1908. 
Uh, what happens in September 2008, actually a lot happens in that month, including the Lehman bankruptcy and, and, and the financial crisis. Um, but uh, one of the other things that happened was the advent of third-party apps on the smartphone. Some, uh, the, uh, the, the, the iPhone came out a year earlier, and as I said, you know, was probably the second most transformative product ever launched after the Model T. But, um, but it was only about a year after that that uh, third-party apps were aligned. And what did that enable? That enabled things like Waze and things like Uber and Lyft and Kareem and all of the other uh, ride hails. And then it enabled the um, micro-mobility revolution that we can talk more about. So all of these things enabled by access to digital mobility via your smartphone. And that is why I think uh, I mark from 2008, the, the age of quote, digital mobility, um, which um, you know, I think we're in the, in, in, still in the early days of digitizing mobility. We, information and, and communication, you could say the digitization of those began in the late 80s or in the 90s and really didn't come to full fruition for 20, 25 years. And I think um, that we're, again, in the early years of, of seeing the same thing happen around transportation. You know what? I think there's so many aspects. And so I'm trying to like build, like have like some structure mad right now, how we, how we should kind of go about this, you know? But like, as, as you just told me that, right? I think there's a, one, one of the, if I think about mobility, right? One of the key things that I that that always comes to mind, or one of the first words that comes into mind, my mind is infrastructure. And no matter no matter the form of mobility that you have, right? So um, either it be trains or let's say cars. And um, I mean, even if we uh, if if we look at, at at public transportation, right? There's um, depending on how which which obviously um, and mobility also always has a lot to do when, when we talk about infrastructure with subsidies, right? And if we look at different regions or different, let's say, geographical areas of the world, right, we see huge, huge differences in, in terms of infrastructure, for example, for public transportation, right? I mean, if we just compare, for example, the US and um, now, let's say, uh, a lot of the recent developments, for example, in Asia, you know, the high-speed train going between Shanghai and Beijing, uh, or let's say in Europe with a lot of the old infrastructure with now having challenges to kind of, you know, build that further, et cetera. And the same goes for, I mean, cars, right? I mean, um, uh, now with the electric mobility um, movement, right? One of the biggest challenges that we have, right? And uh, which, which I have observed as well for the past, let's say 12 to 24 months is still that people say a lot, right? Infrastructure is the critical point, right? So that, that the experience of driving an, um, an, an electric vehicle, right? Um, is a lot determined by that. So um, how, how big of a factor is that, let's say, because you mentioned, for example, the, um, you, you mentioned kind of uh, the iPhone and let's say how, how we, we have with these third-party apps, right, also had, an, an, had a new kind of, um, you know, uh, more service-based using existing, let's say, uh, you know, assets, cars in that sense, you know, to fill up room and basically kind of have an on-demand mobility, right? but ex using existing infrastructure, which can be used, let's say more. But how big of a deal is, is infrastructure, infrastructure really? Because let's say beyond just cars and how, like, how are you kind of thinking about that? Well, infrastructure can mean a lot of things and you're absolutely 
right, that it is central to the adoption of a new mobility form. So let's just talk about a few of those. Um, there's uh, obviously um, uh, charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. And as I said, in the Better Place days, our model was to effectively uh, put battery switch stations at nodes in the uh, transportation system where people would be uh, going beyond the range of batteries. If you're operating within, a, uh, uh, I would say, a small radius, but that radius actually today is, is much bigger than we imagined it 10 years ago because uh, electric cars, I think, come basically with minimum range now of about 200 miles, 300 plus uh, kilometers, um, and, and go up from there. So that that's gives you a, a, a pretty good cushion. But if you're going on a, on a road trip, you need to have the ability to uh, charge that vehicle uh, roughly as, as, as easily as you, you had the ability to fill it with uh, gasoline uh, before. Uh, but in cities, not a lot of people have um, uh, thought about the, the need to have infrastructure. I mean, if you live in an apartment building and if you uh, don't have a fixed parking spot where you can put a place to charge your car, uh, are you ineligible? for electric cars? Or is there a system by which um, fast charging can uh, solve that problem for you? Uh, one of our portfolio companies called Revel uh, that operates in the United States right now and has electric mopeds, uh, Vespa type of vehicles in, uh, in five cities across the US, uh, recently opened the largest universal fast charging facility for electric cars in America in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, they're also using that facility to charge uh, 50 Tesla Model Ys that represent their uh, initial foray into the ride-hailing world with an all-electric fleet. But they're opening that to the public as well. And they have already seen that people are coming there to charge and saying, I just bought this electric car because you opened up here, because now I have the ability to come and charge it here. And I think we're just scratching the, the surface on uh, how much demand there will be for that type of charging infrastructure. Let's talk about a different type of infrastructure though. And it has to do with the city planning and city landscape. And um, in one of, the, one of the themes that I think we see across the globe uh, from Asia to Europe to the US and even it's true here in Israel, that is a desire of young people to live more densely, urbanization. And it's a trend that has, uh, I think, accelerated over decades. Um, it's a trend that some have now begun to question in the wake of COVID, but I really think that that's a very fleeting phenomenon. I think that um, ultimately the impulse to, to live more densely is uh, going to persist. And what that means is that if you have uh, a, a very, very high density, you're not going to be able to have everybody have their own five passenger sedan. There's no room on the streets. There's no room to park. People recognize that and they recognize the inconvenience of it and they already um, are seeking alternatives. And here in Tel Aviv, um, we have, uh, I think, probably one of the most active kick scooter uh, businesses in, in, in the world. We've got three or four operators of, of kick scooters and, and they showed up a few years ago. Nobody knew what to do. The city didn't know what to do. Pedestrians were unhappy. Uh, motorists were unhappy because these things were buzzing around in the streets. And, um, you know, it, it, it took several iterations, and I think it's still a, a work in progress, to get to the right policy. But the right policy is much, made much easier if you actually have a dedicated place for these uh, vehicles to operate. It's also made, more importantly, much safer for the operators. 
And, uh, you know, bike lanes, uh, therefore, are um, a, a fantastic addition to city uh, landscape, particularly in, in the age of scooters, where scooters can share those bike lanes as well, and especially if those lanes are protected from vehicles, as we're increasingly seeing in cities like New York, Paris, and yes, in Tel Aviv, uh, there is a movement on to expand the network of bike lanes, which I think is really a, a phenomenal development because it allows easy, safe mobility within cities um, that, uh, you know, if I'm going from, from my office to one of the hotels on the beach uh, for a meeting, uh, it would never occur to me uh, to get into a car, certainly not my own car, and even not a, a taxi or a ride hail vehicle, because that trip of maybe two, two and a half kilometers, you know, would be uh, long and frustrating. Um, hop on a scooter, and that trip is uh, 10 minutes of uh, breeze in your, in your face, and, and lovely scenery, and, uh, and, 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 and fun, as, as Horace Didu says, the uh, person who uh, coined the phrase micromobility, he said it's uh, more uh, smiles uh, for your miles. And uh, so, but you're right, infrastructure is a, an important uh, component to, uh, to that, to electric vehicles and, and to more. Yeah, so, you know, I think you mentioned a very important one, which is kind of, um, for, you know, who ultimately has um, leverage in, in hand and which is, I would say, let's say local municipalities, right? But you said like urban planning, et cetera. And I mean, I see that, I, I mean, also in different places, right? So, um, uh, especially here in the, uh, in the Netherlands, for example, in, in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, right? Uh, also in, in the other biggest cities. So micromobility is there. And matter of fact, I just spent the uh, last weekend in the Netherlands and I saw that more, you know, uh, really, let's say a lot of people using, you know, these different forms of micromobility that are there. And what you, and also ultimately what you said is, you know, it's just more beautiful in a sense, right? So that if, if you have more green spaces, right? Uh, but, you know, one big, big thing or one, one, one big question mark I have for myself is, um, right, if, if uh, because the OEMs have been, let's say, talking about a lot, you know, about that. So what is kind of the future business model of the OEM, right? So where, and, and I mean, there's been, you know, all these uh, buzzy phrases been thrown around of like, yeah, we're going to be, let's say, mobility providers, right? We're not gonna, it's not, the focus is not gonna be on selling cars, right? But I mean, like what I observe right now, right? Especially um, with this kind of really massive, and I mean, everybody sees this and, and, and is observing it, right? That everybody is going all electric. There's like one model after the other is being introduced. And then now there's these conversations around like, yeah, so by that and that time, all our models are going to be electric. Like, I mean, that kind of stands contra to that, right? Because do we really need more cars, right? And what is the what is the sustainability factor to that, right? If I mean, if we're coining sustainability with like almost you know as as the overall overarching kind of um, motivation in that, um, is that really the case, right? Do we need more cars? Right. Well, look, um, I think um, that that mobility is uh, the world's most elastic market. What do I mean by that? I, I mean that. The easier and the less expensive and the more convenient you make it for people to go places, they will want to go more places. And that, I think, will always hold true. Um, that's why when they added more lanes to the freeways in California, they got more traffic. Um, but what does that mean in terms of what you just said, in terms of do we need more cars? 
And I think you're right. The answer is that we don't necessarily need more cars um, uh, because what we were discussing before, uh, urbanization and the impracticality of individual cars in very, very dense uh, cityscapes. Uh, at the same time, um, I think that there was a, a certain um, euphoria and, uh, and, 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 and kind of a top of the hype cycle, let's say, on, 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 on the idea of autonomous uh, ro robotic taxis that happened uh, four or five years ago where people were saying that their kids that were you know, already uh, teenagers would not end up getting driver's licenses and people wouldn't own cars and that everything would be taken care of uh, by these uh, by these robotic taxis. And I think that uh, so, some, in, in, including to some degree myself, got a little carried away in, 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 in that kind of uh, utopian uh, vision, uh, which is to say that uh, I believe that cars are here to stay. But I also believe that aside from the sort of enthusiast angle around cars, uh, for the rest of the world that just uh, wants to, a practical way to get around, um, that uh, cars will uh, be less dominant in the future because uh, the, the mile, the, the shorter trips um, at, in the denser places are going to be taken up by uh, lighter uh, forms of, uh, lighter and more convenient forms of, of transportation. We, we talked about kick scooters. We didn't talk about e-bikes, which, you know, e-bike is an incredible phenomenon in these last few years. I and mean, COVID has been a tailwind for it, but it was already spiking. And uh, I, I think um, there's an incredible passion around e-bikes uh, in many, many quarters for good reason, because it really uh, provides uh, a way to balance between uh, that convenience that we talked about and, you know, still having uh, the the advantages of um, some uh, some some physical activity at, at the same time, um, and and they're and they're just a joy uh, to, to to ride. I did a, I did a quick um, blog post a couple of years ago that I actually wrote um, while on a, a jump electric bike in London, um, and it, it it was coming back from a, a short visit I made to a landmark that I was able to squeeze in between meetings that. Uh, I would simply not have done any other way. In other words, uh, I wouldn't have gotten in the tube for this, and I certainly wouldn't have gotten in the cab uh, or, or something like that. But because I had access to that bike right outside the meeting that I had left, I was able to hire it in a couple of clicks. I was able to hop on it and in 10 minutes be at the place I wanted to be. And I felt like it was a profound moment that, you know, yeah, this is sure, these will replace car trips. Uh, but they'll also um, introduce new opportunities uh, for, for um, movement, whether that is to, uh, to visit people, to visit sites, to conduct commerce, and uh, ultimately, um, I think, uh, leads to uh, an, an, an enrichment to a, to a society. So I think it's actually pretty profound. Um, uh, but, you know, I've, I've strayed uh, from your original question, but bottom line is, island cars are going away but cars are going to be a smaller proportion of total miles uh, over the next decade for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you know, um, let's, let's talk about more kind of, you know, your, your own manifesto and let's say the focuses that you guys have because, you know, maybe just like a, some, 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 some key facts Let's start off with some key facts uh, about Manif. So like, you know, what, what's, what's kind of the, 
uh, origin story here? Like what, what, what have you, what are some of the major milestones you guys reached over the last years, you know, and what is it like, how do you get um, mobility nowadays from, from, from an investment perspective, right? Um, let's, 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 let's uh, dive into that. Sure. So um, this actually kind of picks the story up uh, where I left off before, uh, after Better Place, after the, uh, the billion dollar uh, uh, crash and burn startup uh, that did networks for electric vehicles. Um, I, uh, I found myself living in Israel uh, then at a time when um, there was a, a really crazy renaissance of mobility innovation going on in Israel. Um, some of the companies uh, are household names, Waze and Mobileye that later got bought by Intel. Uh, move it and, and others. Uh, but uh, it turned out that um, during the last decade, more than 600 startups were created in Israel just around mobility. And um, I started hearing from some of them in their early days uh, when I first came to Israel in 2013, 2014, uh, because those five years that I had spent uh, building the electric car network company Better Place, uh, I had spent time with car companies and not a lot of people in Israel had had that experience. Israel uh, was you know, not, not an automotive capital uh, such as Detroit or Stuttgart or, or Japan. So um, uh, they, they were interested to get my knowledge and to get my insights and to have a connection here or there. And I was interested in what they were doing and uh, began to actually do some angel investing on my own in some of these startups. And that phenomenon kind of picked up a momentum that I didn't expect. And uh, I realized uh, just how many uh, mobility startups there were and how interesting so many of them were. And um, I started talking to some people and they started saying, well, you know, we take some of my money. And I was like, well, you know, I don't really want to necessarily uh, be a fiduciary here, but then ultimately I saw the opportunity is so interesting. And I felt so well positioned to do it that I uh, sort of gave in and became a, a venture capitalist and um, put together a bit of a team. And um, now we're um, about uh, six years into this journey um, and we've raised uh, two funds. Um, and we have uh, about $160 million under management and we have a portfolio of about 32 companies. And uh, I'd say those companies um, can be characterized in essentially two ways. There are a lot of very deep technology companies. Most of those are the ones in Israel and those have sensors for, uh, uh, for like radar for, for, for cars. They have uh, automotive cybersecurity for, for vehicles. They have simulation software for um, testing autonomous systems and silicon for doing onboard computing. And they very energy efficient way and, and, and much more. And then the second category, uh, which is mostly outside Israel. And in fact, we're now, we have portfolio companies in eight countries. Uh, that, that, that are, those are largely more closer to the consumer. And those are largely platforms. So I mentioned Rebel with the electric mopeds and, and ride share in the US. And uh, we were proud to be the first fund out of Israel to invest in uh, startup in the UAE after the uh, Abraham Accords were signed in the White House last year. That's a company called Phoenix, and they operate a kick scooter network across the uh, the Gulf countries. That also includes 10-minute grocery delivery and payments and so forth. Um, we recently sold the company uh, out of Madrid 
that was a pioneer in vehicle subscriptions. And um, so we have uh, we have uh, a whole variety of companies from from the deep tech to serving the consumer and uh, one company I'd say that's kind of in between we talked about e-bikes We have a company based in Australia that's operating in San Francisco, New York, London and other cities with electric bikes for delivery carriers and you know they operate kind of uh, th their business is mostly uh, BSC but the C being couriers but also uh, also businesses in there finding just a tremendous spike in interest um, in, in the last couple of years with, with delivery obviously becoming so much more important to uh, urban living. So it's a um, broad sector mobility as we've talked about, uh, but you know, we're, um, we, we work hard to stay on top of it. And um, we're very proud of uh, the, the portfolio that, that we've built. Right. So, Mike, you said that you are uh, not an engineer, not a not a deep tech person. And um, you know, uh, what I'm curious about is uh, what what do you think makes you? Uh, um, you know, I mean, you said like, yeah, I, I you know, I had, I had some context in in in, in from the OEMs. You know, I'm, I was uh, uh, already before that in in kind of the mobility space and so. But like, what what do you think makes you a good VC or like, you know? What what is kind of the characteristics that ultimately kind of help you to you know make the investments that you do? Uh, obviously, besides like also having a good team and and you know uh, having having good people to evaluate, obviously if if needed, uh, certain deep tech related features. But like, what do you think are those factors? Um. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and I hope you're right that um, we, we are good at what we do. The feedback cycles in venture are very long. So in 10 years, we'll see how, how we ultimately did. Um, but um, we're very pleased with how we're doing right now. And you know, what are the reasons for that? Aside from, as you mentioned, the terrific team that, that we have uh, here at Maniv, um, I think the reason is because um, we have such a passion for the sector. And, and as I, I hope I've been able to convey, uh, a real sense that there's um, something very human about uh, having the freedom of movement. Um, and there's economic opportunity in it, of course, um, but there's also so much more. And uh, there's no reason in a world in which we can move bits at the speed of light around the world, there's no reason why we should um, have be confined to a transportation system uh, that is uh, completely based on atoms from, from the 20th century. And that's very exciting to be part of building this uh, transportation future. We're lucky enough to attract uh, really outstanding entrepreneurs, uh, as I said, now from all over the world. And working with them day in, day out is really the joy of our business because uh, they bring passion to what they do. Uh, they have great ideas. And yes, many of them are actual engineers who can, uh, can build uh, what, 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 what they envision and what, what inspires us. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, I think that uh, where we've been lucky is to um, be in the right place at the right time. Uh, the, the, it, it, it was a costly paying of the dues, uh, the, the five years in better place, as I said, but that, that period of time also had some very, very important highs and, and, and the people who I met in that experience, uh, both inside better place and across the automotive industry and beyond ended up being critical for what came next. And um, finally, I think, uh, I, 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 I hope we, we 
feed people fairly. And I think that our, our founders feel that way. I think our investors feel that way. And uh, so um, when, when, when we have a company that we'd like to invest in, and maybe we're not going to offer uh, terms as good as someone else, we ask that founder to go call any one of our other uh, company uh, CEOs and ask what the experience is like working with us. And oftentimes we'll come back and say, you know what, we're going to we're going to take your money rather than uh, the other money that was at better terms because we, we want to work with you. And that's uh, um, something that makes us very proud. Right. So one of the things you mentioned is economic opportunities, right? And uh, so one of the, um, let's say, discussions that I had, um, I would say already one and a half years ago, um, uh, when we had really this kind of first um, noticeable wave of micromobility, uh, you know, and now, I mean, even during Corona times, I mean, I just mentioned, right, so spent the, spent the weekend in, 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 in the Netherlands and, and also I, I was in Italy a couple of months ago and I, I saw, I, I see this basically, you know, picking up and really kind of being a thing. You know, but there's also this other thing which we have now, which is, um, you know, this buzz around 10 minute delivery, right? So, you know, how do you evaluate something like that, right? Like, how do you, because one of the, I remember still like one of the interesting, um, I had this conversation with somebody from a corporate VC and somebody saying like, yeah, you know, um, uh, scooter companies are a race to the bottom, you know, so, uh, or, uh, you know, the same thing now going on with, um, with these 10 minute delivery companies, right? It's, 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 it's um, like, if you look from the outside, right, it, it seems crazy what's going on. Um, so what's your take on this? So um, I'm old enough to remember the first go round of this uh, at, during the uh, dot-com bubble of the 99, 2000 period. And I was living in Manhattan at the time and there were a company called Cosmo and a company called uh, Urban Fetch. And uh, remember this is before the age of, of phones. So you actually be on your computer or, or maybe on, on your laptop and you'd go to the site and you'd order a pint of ice cream and the guy'd come and deliver it in 10 minutes uh, in, in New York City. And, um, you know, that was obviously very, very cool. Uh, I also remember watching the CEO on, uh, on CNBC trying to justify the economics of it and talking about how ultimately they were going to be delivering much higher margin goods, making much more money on those, et cetera. It seemed uh, far-fetched, and in fact, it was. And those companies did not uh, survive at that time. Um, so what about this time around with a similar uh, dynamic? First of all, what you said um, around uh, what, what someone told you about, about scooters being rinsed at the bottom, uh, an important point that I think applies itself to scooters, but applies itself to other businesses as well, which is that one size does not fit all, which, by which I mean, um, you know, every location is a, a huge determinant of so many things in life and uh, the success or failure of certain uh, business models and mobility is definitely very location driven. I described what it's like in Tel Aviv being congested and flat and tech savvy, young demographic and good weather. And all those things make it a terrific place to operate scooters. Um, you know, there are many places, uh, including, uh, let's say, the area that I grew up in, uh, New Jersey, in suburban New York City, where kick scooters would really not be practical at all. Uh, and there's lots of places in between where you have to, to judge whether that makes sense or, 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 or not. 
Um, we invested in Phoenix because we looked at cities like Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and we said, you know what, they have a lot in common with Tel Aviv, and uh, if it's going to be successful in Tel Aviv, it'll be successful in those cities and, and in others. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of the, the things like the 10 minute delivery, you know, we, we do get these phenomena from time to time, but sometimes they hold, sometimes they don't. Um, we'll, we'll see about this one, but I have a feeling that um, this will not be a repeat of 2000. I, I don't think that we're going to see companies uh, like uh, Gorilla uh, or, or others, you know, uh, go away. Uh, there may be adjustments to the business model. Competition will uh, obviously bring, uh, bring changes as well. Um, and there may be increased prices or it may take uh, 30 minutes instead of 10 minutes. But um, it's clear that, uh, you know, uh, delivery is something that people like the convenience of. COVID has uh, accelerated people getting used to certain things and that's one. And so I think that business is here to stay. It's a matter of exactly what it looks like over time. Right. You know, if we're already at economics, uh, I, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I read a paper uh, by a Harvard economists uh, on the using past data on, on capital markets uh, to, to, to look for potentials to, um, to predict financial crisis. And um, so one of the things I, you know, I, I mean, yes, COVID, crazy times um, and absolutely correct. But I mean, what you can see is definitely, I mean, there's a, a very, let's say, open capital market in that sense and like a huge increase with whatever asset class, right, uh, all over the world. Um, and I mean, even like in mobility. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk to um, the guys at Infineon, for example, right? Um, the, the, the crisis around chips and semiconductors and all these things, right? So um, how, how do you look at, um, you know, the status quo when, it's, when it comes to, let's say, all, these, all this money being available? Um, you know that, that that let's say that that's that's one one part and the other and at the other you know side of things um, asset classes and and, and and you know resources uh, kind of just like you know increasing in price to 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 you know heights which are which are I mean already crazy and um, well, how do you basically take that up you know also to look into the future for let's say you know investments investment decisions and let's say the potential success or failure for companies that might depend on let's say the status quo of the financial market um well look uh it, it's never um really a good idea to try to forecast the global financial uh, markets and the stock market and all that um, you know, one, one can be fairly sure based on history that uh, the picture gets better over time, but that doesn't uh, apply itself well to um, short-term uh, thinking. And, you know, I think that's the, the real answer, which is that um, you have to approach uh, startups for knowing that it's possible at any moment that the uh, macro winds shift and that it is really, really hard to raise money. Um, and uh, that's why, you know, we try very hard for our companies to be well capitalized. Um, 
We are generally in favor of them taking money even when they don't need it uh, to uh, be, be ready for that, for that rainy day, which will ultimately obviously come. Now, I certainly have seen a few cycles in my life of uh, you know, companies that didn't make it because they weren't prepared for uh, the vicissitudes of, uh, of the global markets. But um, you know those that, those that plan well and those that keep their eye on the ball uh, of a long-term uh, vision, um, I think you know can survive uh, the troubled times and then can can really thrive uh, on the way out of them. Right. So you know, I one of the things that I wanted to still talk about to you about is uh, is in general. I mean, we, we, we talked about e-bikes, we talked about micromobility and in, in, in general, all the different types of offerings there. Um, this, this huge shift towards uh, that we see in, in e-mobility and uh, on, on the car level, et cetera, all these things. Um, some of the things, so there's two things that I, that I want to talk about and, and which, which, I'm, which I'm thinking about a lot as well is um, let's, let's, let's start with the first one, which is, um, recycling, so life cycle of batteries and, um, and that huge, let's say, challenge uh, or let's say opportunity at the same time, I guess, um, for, for, for let's say, for really handling what is coming, right, in, in all senses. And um, I, there's companies, you know, um, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of that, that are, that are working on this, but how, let's, let's, you know, for people that don't know, maybe from your side, like, are you looking at this as well? You know, what is kind of the status quo? And um, the other thing, so going to the second one, um, which I'm going to throw right after this, is uh, what are opportunities for in, in that shift for potential new first tier or second tier players, right? So along the line in that new value chain that we see that is forming, um, what are the opportunities there for new players? Um, well, look, uh... I think sustainability is a theme that is running through everything these days, and it's not just about you know the, the headline issues around uh, global warming and 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 and, and emissions reduction things like that, but it's um, you know the supply chain and and and, and use of resources, and um, the the question is that you know what point does um, recycling of materials become the economically feasible uh, and economically desirable path. And I think we see across industries that, that uh, they arrive at a moment when that, that happens. And in, in terms of batteries, you know, I think that's pretty inevitable that the, uh, uh, as I said, I don't, um, I'm not an engineer or have deep technical knowledge, but I did have lots of conversations about batteries and second life and uh, recycling around this, a better place days and since. And everything I've understood convinces me that um, there will be a circular economy when it comes to battery production. Um, very, very different than that uh, around uh, oil production. And that we will see, um, in, you know, over time, as the volumes increase, as the economic incentives to reuse become uh, greater as technology permits, um, we'll, we'll see more and more of that. And as you say, that is going to open up uh, tremendous economic opportunities. Hey, Mike, it was great having you in the podcast. Um, lots of interesting topics. I'd like a hundred others that we could touch on. 
Um, but unfortunately, we already ran out of time. You know, maybe we can do this in a, in a second one in the future. Uh, I guess it's super interesting times, as you said, right? Uh, mobility is really something that, I mean, touches everyone. And uh, those are some really great times for, you know, for new companies. And it was really great having you here. It was, uh, it was an honor. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for having me and look forward to seeing you again.